I drink these fucking sparkling H-E-B waters. Oh, yeah. I like those, oh, but uh, I've been back on the, the soda kick for the last little while. My girlfriend was like looking up stuff that would help me with my blood sugar because I have non-diabetic hypoglycemia. So once in a while, my blood sugar like just falls through the floor and I get like dizzy and weird. Uh, and she was like, we need to keep orange juice and soda in the house at all times. So the the Coca-Cola addiction I had when I was a teenager oh, is back in it's, full force. It's so fucking good, though. Mm. It's unbelievably good. I mean, I know they killed, like, they hired <laughs> assassins to kill union leaders in South America, like, uh, in the 60s and 70s and stuff. But I still, no shit, huh? I can't stop drinking it. It's, like, one of the most addictive. I would probably give up my jewel before I would give up Coca-Cola. <laughs> I do love uh, Coke out of a can, especially that first oh. that first sip where it just got that good bite to it. Yeah, when there's still like, when you crack it open and there's that weird like fizzy steam coming off of it. Hell yeah. That's my <sighs> fucking favorite. <laughs> Welcome to a podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today, I have uh, John Zichterman returning to the podcast. John has, uh, since we had him on last, has started his solo Anarchist podcast. This is not a Librox recording. Of course, he is also co-host of Beep Beep Lettuce. Most importantly, though, he is a fellow anarchist, fan of Sterner, <laughs> and SNES aficionado. So, John, thanks so much for taking time out of your afternoon to join me today, man. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. I think it's going to be really fun. We're gonna we're gonna crack into some postmodernism and some some Sterner, and we're gonna draw a lot of comparisons, fair and unfair, and hopefully fun and illuminating. So, this is filling all of my holes. It's filling my like postmodernism, poststructuralist hole, my my <laughs> Sterner hole, <laughs> and then my anarchy hole as well. Yeah, so it's I'm, really. I'm, triple threat I'm sealed up watertight today. <laughs> but uh today we're gonna pick up on or we're gonna do a little bit of discussion and reading from two articles by uh from the anarchist library by saul newman the first we'll start out with is going to be war on the state sterner and deleuze's anarchism and also interrogating the master lacan and radical politics jacques lacan and anarchism um, and again, we're going to start with the Sterner and Deleuze piece, and then we will transition into interrogating the master, because I think there's a nice sort of logical flow from from the Sterner and Deleuze piece into the Lacan. But uh, st starting out, I, I found this interesting because I had, when I first kind of started digging into Sterner, maybe about a year ago uh, or so, and the idea of the spooks and all of that kind of was attracted to that just in the sense of he really reminded me of almost like a Derridian kind of, you know, sort of attacking the, the center at the heart of the Enlightenment or the Western philosophic tradition and phallogocentrism and all of that sort of thing and and sort of unmasking those those pillars that uh, that sort of undergird, um, I guess, the political culture we live in, well, really undergird everything. Yeah. In terms of the good old US of A and kind of Western culture in general. Yeah, well, we have such a deeply, like, ideologically entrenched tradition in the West. And I mean, a lot of that comes from the era in which Stirner was writing. You know, um, people don't like to admit it, but like a lot of 
political economic terms and stuff that we have today, that even the ones used by you know conservatives and capitalists and stuff, are originally Marxist kind of formulations of thought. So I think it's interesting how Stirner was, and they bring this up right at the beginning of the article here, um, or the piece, uh, it's interesting that Stirner is kind of always lumped in with his contemporaries, even though he kind of in a way did as much as he could to put himself outside of all the things that were happening at that time, right? Like, while Marx had a very integrational kind of approach of like analyzing something, you know, it was dialectical. He'd, he'd take another thinker's hypothesis, say like uh, Hegel or uh, Adam Smith or whatever, and he would take their hypothesis, develop uh, a negation of it, and kind of arrive at it through synthesis, but or arrive at a new hypothesis through synthesis. But what Stirner did was kind of like, he, he interrogated that dialectical method itself. And like every time you try and turn a tool against Stirner, he, would, he just kind of breaks it down. I think he, he undermines kind of the, uh, the academic honesty of, of whatever you kind of try to bring against him. And that's the same thing that a lot of people, particularly critics of post-structuralist and, and post-modern philosophers, have said uh, that they do as well. But to me, I can't think of any more useful kind of philosophical endeavor than to try and find where maybe our preconceived ideas are baseless. And like Marx, contemporary with Stirner as he was, uh, in opposition to Stirner, as he often was, even said, you know, we still live in prehistory. Uh, and I think Stirner took that a little bit further even, and he said, well, you know, we're basically still just superstitious monkeys at this point. Let's see what we can do about that. I think in particular, a lot of what undergirds Western civilization, enlightenment thinking, are, and is really kind of this idealism, philosophical idealism. Mm-hmm. And you see it, it's just, it's rampant. Like everyone is a idealist. Well, I mean, that's what I was like brought up to believe essentially. And it's not like out and out spoken in the United States by either one party that like, if you just have strong enough convictions, they eventually will become material reality. But if you look at the way that liberalism and conservatism and fascism uh, operate, really that's, that's kind of the basic underlying thing. Only really as political traditions that I know of have Marxism and anarchism really ever kind of put ideology in service of material reality instead of the other way around. But um, <clears throat> beginning with the text, I did want to read, I guess, really the initial uh, paragraph here mm-hmm. just to back up and kind of give us some evidence for this argument that Stirner is somewhat of a kind of proto-post-structuralist or postmodernist. Max Stirner's impact on contemporary political theory is often neglected. However, in Stirner's political thinking, there can be found a surprising convergence with post-structuralist theory, particularly with regard to the function of power. Andrew Koch, for instance, sees Stirner as a thinker who transcends the Hegelian tradition he is usually placed in, arguing that his work is a precursor, is a precursor to structuralist ideas about the foundations of knowledge and truth. Koch argues that Stirner's individualistic challenge to the philosophical basis of the state goes beyond the limits of traditional Western philosophy, presenting a challenge to its transcendental epistemology. Which I think is all pretty much on point. Um, I really appreciate the idea that 
Sterner can kind of be conceived of as a a, a proto you know postmodernist or post structuralist kind of in the same way that like you wouldn't have thought of uh Frege as an analytical philosopher he existed before that was a current but kind of when you look back of course the the connection of analytic philosophy to Frege is much more direct than that of post structuralism to to Stirner but there is kind of like a like a, a a common a commonality between them where you see that thinkers who were operating in so such far out there realms should we say such such far deterritorialized realms of thought uh <laughs> that they don't really have a way to even be classified during their time and and Stirner even now is is very hard to to classify because his philosophy is so rigidly rejective um or I shouldn't even say rigidly I should say it's just so overwhelmingly um rejective would you say that um I mean to cause to me that also is more so like his the sort of um i guess the whole drive of postmodernism as a whole is a profound skepticism about every single thing and about all the assumptions that we've made as part of the enlightenment or the western philosophical tradition themselves and that to me is the direct link between those his his thought and and someone like deleuze broadly speaking yeah. Well, it was more of a kind of cultural moment, I think, for the postmodernist and post-structural thinkers. Uh, it was something that was kind of like there was a social kind of shift that was a little bit presupposing this attitude. And they were kind of exploring it, I think. I don't want to say like in reaction, but just kind of as a response to what they were noticing as like um, a more and more widespread kind of zeitgeist, especially among the French people. Of course, most of the very famous postmodernists and post-structuralists are French philosophers, whereas the cultural moment that was happening around Stirner was very, very different. And he was very much operating in direct, like flying directly in the face of uh, nearly all of his contemporaries at the time. So uh, that might be part of the reason for such a, uh, a cosmetic difference in the way that these thinkers operate, despite the fact that when you break it down to their very most basic instincts, um, they're, they have a lot of similarities, like a rejection of dualism, uh, embracing like pluralism or some kind of like monistic conception of the world. Um, and of course, compatibility with anarchism. I don't know. Was Deleuze um, an anarchist himself? I know a lot of anarchists pull from his theory, just like with Stirner. You know, I'm not Deleuze. I'm not as familiar with um, as such. I'm more so like Foucault, Derrida, Baudrillard. Those right. are the thinkers that I've had more direct exposure to. Deleuze, um, I definitely I have anti Oedipus, and I have a thousand plateaus. <laughs> I just haven't. I've delved into them like a little bit, but Deleuze is still. I have. I haven't had time to really get around and focus on on his work. But I'm totally fascinated and on board with it. He's one of those thinkers that I've. I still don't have like a a a, a total understanding of. But I've just. I've brushed up against his work so many times, and so many people that I I talk to about politics and and political theory and philosophy and stuff have have mentioned Deleuze and Guattari to me just re so repeatedly that um you know you, you listen to a podcast here or there or you watch a, a a YouTube video um 
but I've, I've, it's funny that you wanted to go over this article in particular because uh, I've read this article uh, a few okay, different funny. times in various states of inebriation, <laughs> mind you. So n- <laughs> nobody should think I have this memorized or anything. Right. Um, um, I just always thought it was a really interesting kind of point because I bring it up to people who are familiar with these thinkers and they're like, oh, Deleuze and Stirner couldn't, couldn't be more different. And I think that's just a, it's a little bit of a, of a myopic way to look at philosophical contributions. Yeah. And actually, I, I want to read from the text about that very thing, about how they do align. There are many important parallels between the two thinkers, and they may be viewed in different ways as anti-state, anti-authoritarian philosophers. I want to show the way in which Stirner's critique of the state anticipates, anticipates Deleuze's post-structuralist rejection of state thought, and more importantly, the ways in which their anti-essentialist, post-humanist anarchism transcends and thus reflects the limits of classical anarchism. It must be understood, however, that while there are many important similarities between Stirner and Deleuze, there are also many differences, and in many ways it may seem unusual to approach to bring these two thinkers together. Um, We've already discussed it, but for instance, Stirner, along with Marx, one of the young Hegelians, his work emerged as a supremely individualistic critique of German idealism particularly of the Feuerbachian and Hegelian kind. Deleuze, on the other hand, was a 20th century philosopher who, along with Foucault and Derrida, is regarded as one of the chief post-structuralist thinkers, while Deleuze's work can also be seen as an attack on Hegelianism. It follows different and more diverse paths from politics and psychoanalysis to literature and film theory. Stirner, not generally regarded as a post-structuralist and apart from Koch's groundbreaking article and Derrida's work on Marx, He has received virtually no attention in light of contemporary theory. However, and this is perhaps the problem with labels like post-structuralism, there are several crucial planes of convergence between the two thinkers, particularly in their critique of political domination and authority that one can tease out and one which would be denied if stuck to such labels. It is precisely in this rejection of the tyranny of labels, essentially identities, abstractions, and fixed ideas this attack on authoritarian concepts which limit thought that Stirner and Deleuze achieve some common ground, some sort of common ground, rather, which I think is, let's see, so this this idea, and I think I've read this about Stirner's kind of even the the idea of the human being, that concept being, being sort of a limit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think well, that ties into this quote here, this authoritarian concepts which limit us like these these categories these idealistic categories that we're all sort of placed in and just kind of the the milieu of contemporary society and everything that is based on that idealism yeah you know well that idealism teaches us to subordinate ourselves to whatever the ideal is that that it is that we've been told is 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 more important than us and of course uh Deleuze being more concerned with state thought, Stirner being more concerned with the the functioning concept of the state itself, but they both they they both analyze it on this this angle that kind of says like once you put a label on something, once you put a name to something, that name begins to take on its own kind of character and it develops an even within the minds of the people who are speaking it, right? Not like the word itself, but it develops a character or an identity that it needs to defend. And so if I start thinking of myself, you know, not just as me, 
you know, gesturing emptily at this very complex and impossible to describe thing that is me. But if I start to think of myself as a podcaster or a parking attendant or a guy who really likes chili cheese dogs, those sort of become uh, controlling and, and totalizing ideas that you kind of place yourself subservient to, even if it's just like, you know, blowing off something that would be in your better interest to go get a chili cheese dog. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting that that uh, Saul here has, has kind of very clearly uh, brushed away a lot of the stuff that superficially makes them seem very, very different and been like this, this kind of critique of process and this kind of critique of identity and, and, of, and of labels is almost more important to each of their work than like, you know, any of the other major points that, that tear them apart. And I don't know Deleuze as well as I know Stirner, but I know that for Stirner, that's very, very true. He has a, a line where he talks about like, you know, I should call you Ludwig, but you are not Ludwig. You're not a Ludwig. There's no category of Ludwigs that exists and has uniform features. It is simply uh, a label that I use to give shorthand to you. But if you think of yourself as this Ludwig, even if you think of yourself as the you that is this Ludwig, you're still holding on to an idealized conception of, of what you are, and you're letting the ideological form come before material reality. And I don't know if that's the way that Stirner would phrase it, but I think, you know, Stirner is very concerned with reincorporating yourself into the, the direct sensory experience of the world without, you know, not without thinking, obviously he wants you to be rational and, and have thoughts, but without having thoughts that are preconceived and not predicated on on the situation that you're in. I, and it seems like Deleuze is a little bit more concerned with kind of the the social projections that we have, the, the culture and the the interrelationships that are kind of produced by this while Stirner is a little more relentlessly metaphysical about it and just points to the, the metaphysical contradictions that kind of underpin language and underpin like social organization. But I think it is really enlightening. And I think it's the kind of thing that like, even before I was in leftist politics before, you know, when I was just like a liberal or whatever, I had these instincts maybe from, being taught about the scientific method or something, but I had these instincts. I just didn't have a way to express express them coherently uh, with regards to, you know, philosophy or natural science or or politics or anything. Yeah, I think it's very much the same for me too, and that's I think why I'm so enamored with postmodernism. Is once I kind of stumbled into that world, I was like, holy shit, this this explains so much about what I'm seeing right now. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I was entering college, you know, I graduated from high school in in 2001, and then the whole Iraq war, which is right around the time that I'm kind of unveiling and delving into these ideas, it's like, holy shit, like, this is making so much sense, this is like mapping so perfectly onto the world as it exists for me at this point, in this whole, you know, run up to the Iraq war, and just that madness. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that was a very, like... Uh, to use the term in its more colloquial sense, that was a very postmodernist time in American culture, right? Like we were having a cultural moment that was basically just like, what the fuck? 
still like left over from from 2001 when everybody lost their minds over 9/11 and we just kind of like we just kind of like blundered from one idiotic policy decision to the next uh and and of course the state didn't blunder dick cheney knew exactly what he was doing but uh the rest of us were were kind of thrown into uh a lot of uncertainty and i think when when you're living in a historical moment of uncertainty or when you've lived through those moments, it's hard to, uh, look at like, a like a teleological or, or a, a kind of certain interpretation of history as anything other than a bit of a fairy tale or, or a right. bit of a, something that you're just saying to reassure yourself. And that's not to say that I think Mark's, himself is necessarily as like dogmatic as a lot of postmodernists or anarchists or whoever it may be kind of make him out to be. He was very self-aware, but a lot of Marxists and a lot of Marxist theory that has kind of come after him. I do feel like both Stirner and, and Deleuze's kind of interrogation of the validity of form and the and the validity of content simultaneously uh, is, can be very very valuable there because I mean it, it's like um, when I was listening to the Revolutionary Left Radio podcast debating scientific socialism with the Seriously <laughs> Wrong podcast and the this, the wrong boy said like uncertainty is scientific certainty is not scientific generally speaking uh, and I think that that's something that's very important to remember both in you know political science and in more abstract philosophy like we're dealing with right now and i think that's the kind of that's the same general ethos that brings stirner and people like deleuze and guattari to this kind of point and there's a lot of criticism of it and people very fairly say like you know what am i supposed to do with this what this doesn't propel me to action this doesn't tell me what's going to happen tomorrow or next week um but I think that my response to that would be, if you paid attention to what, what you were just told, you would see that you already didn't know <laughs> what was coming tomorrow or next week. And yeah, now exactly. you're in a more honest place to deal with that. Now you're in a right. place where you have tools to deal with uncertainty. Exactly. And that's the same kind of like, that's what got me so into Camus when I was in high school and kind of like kicked off my whole being interested in philosophy in the first place was he was like, you know, if there's no way to know about something, then you really don't have to worry about it if it's functionally unknowable. And I was like, wow, that's a beautiful thing. That's not what I expected to hear from a philosopher. <laughs> and I think that's a better way. Like, it's a more honest way of dealing with the world rather than a sort of idealist tradition that we're all so steeped in, you know? Yeah. It's like if there is no, like, that is, that's like the disconnection for me. It's like I... I went like 18 years of my life in this kind of small community growing up in like a, a rural, you know, uh, evangelical home, right? So where everything is like, oh, it's like God and country, right? But then when right. you kind of like that rug gets pulled out from under you, it's very destabilizing and it's like your kind of bubble has been popped. And then you kind of like are on this very loose terrain. Um, and I would rather have been, you know, treated more honestly or talked to more honestly about what the world is like and how it operates then anticipating that there was always going to be this bedrock concept um, or universal signifier in, in a God or something head that I could, you know, always build some type of system from. 
Yeah. Well, it's that uncertainty, you know, of, of not knowing that makes us uncomfortable. And I think that that's the kind of thing that is unwittingly kind of reproduced in places like philosophy and political science and things like that all the time where it's like, you're, you're so pained by not having the, the information that you would like to have to make a decision about something that it causes you to develop or, or overextend kind of the, the logic at your disposal and, and bend it out of its actual, you know, logical, falsifiable, you know, shape and into something that suits your purposes, even if it's not, um, consistent all the way through. And I think that people like Stirner and people like Deleuze, uh, are often kind of looked at as like the party poopers of philosophy who are like, um, like, like some, like, like, like Hegel thought, and Marx thought that they got like 19 levels into a video game and Sterner was like, yeah, but if you die, you're going to go all the way back to checkpoint one, you know, two <laughs> levels in. And, and a lot of people have described Sterner as a, a radical nominalist. And if you look at what nominalism means in like different branches of philosophy, usually it just means that like you throw out every assumption, every a priori bit of reasoning. Uh, and it's very, very hard to do anything from that point like people have tried to develop a totally nominalist way of understanding mathematics and made almost like zero progress like 0.1% progress compared to where conventional mathematics are at because it's just that much more challenging but i think that if you if you're the kind of person who is skeptical in the first place and you're willing to hone in on that this kind of like constant skepticism constant questioning of what underpins you know the processes that underpin the thing you're talking about you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, because there's always going to be all of these different kind of like scaling layers of understanding to something and you know whether you're more of a post-structuralist and you think that maybe there's no center to it right it's like an onion that just kind of contains multitudes of itself or like an Ouroboros or if you're you're more like Stirner who just thinks everything just is the particular thing that it that it is or at least there's no value in trying to assess kind of beyond that point either way you're going to be really well served and in unexpected ways uh by having this kind of like I don't even want to call it a rigid skepticism because I think you do have to be skeptical of your own skepticism and its usefulness <laughs> at times, but I, I would say just a very adamant kind of uh, cautious disbelief, you know. For sure. Um, sometimes I think I can probably go too far in the in the skeptical realm, and yeah, it does become impossible to, <laughs> to do anything um, at, at a certain point. But at some, it also is a I think a powerful tool for just. I don't know. You, you need a healthy skepticism. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a freedom in that too, you know, um, whenever you de sort of, when you destroy everything, then oh, yeah. you can create anything and you're not limited by, by the spooks, you know? Well, and it's like a little bit meditative too. It's like when you don't, when, when you're, how do I want to say this? When you're so open 
to all of the possibilities, right? You, when you have so little preconceived about a situation, it's often very, very difficult to arrive at a plan of action, right? The, the, the quickest plans of action, and sometimes time is of the essence, uh, come from knowing what you're going to do before you even arrive at a situation. Um, and that can be valuable, right? That's like the skepticism of skepticism thing. There's a paradox with skepticism, just like with tolerance and just with, like with a lot of other kind of abstract concepts. But I think that right up to the point of resulting and not being able to do anything, and sometimes still at that point, it's very, very useful because people want to rush into things headlong. And sometimes that that lack of certainty is what you need to put yourself into a, not maybe a meditative, but like a free associative state. And you can probably learn a lot more about the situation or maybe like learn more actually relevant or fundamental elements of the situation than you would have if you just rushed in with a preconceived notion. And of course this is philosophy. So no, we're not talking about saving people from burning buildings unless the burning building is transcendental empiricism. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's uh, let's go back to the text. Um, I did want to read f straight from the text about the uh, Sterner yeah. and Deleuzian critiques of the state. Both Sterner and Deleuze see the state as an abstraction that transcends its different concrete manifestations, yet at the same time operates through them. The state is more than a particular institution existing in a particular historical stage. The state is an abstract principle of power and authority that has always existed in different forms, yet is somehow more than these particular actualizations. Stirner's critique of the state demonstrates this crucial point. For Stirner, the state is an essentially oppressive institution. However, Stirner's rejection of the state goes beyond a critique of particular states, like the liberal state or the socialist state. Rather, it constitutes an attack on the state itself, the very category of state power, not just the different forms it assumes. What must be overcome, according to Stirner, is the very idea of state power itself, the ruling principle. Stirner is therefore opposed to revolutionary programs such as Marxism, which have their aim at the aim, which have as their aim the seizure rather than the destruction of state power. The Marxist worker state would be a reaffirmation of the state in different guise, a change of masters. Stirner suggests that war might rather be declared against the establishment itself, the state, not a particular state, not any such thing as the mere condition of the state at the time. It is not another state, such as the people state, that men aim at. And this is very crucial, um, what he's saying right here. And this is something that I think a lot of anarchists understand kind of implicitly, but don't always have a way of describing, right? Like, personally, if a Marxist-Leninist vanguard took over, let's say, the United States government and tried to make a, a proletarian state out of it, sure, I would support that, but not on principle, right? Not on, like, the idea of, like, oh, that was the absolute best thing to do. I would just support that because as an anarchist, I think I would be better served getting my getting my message out under that. So I, I think there's a little bit of literalism in anarchism, um, especially when we look at this critique of state power where we say, like, we must always, in perpetuity, try and destroy it right on its face. But the state is more of an insidious body than that, right? And, and, and Stirner even says here, you know, we shouldn't just declare war on a particular sh state, but on the idea of statehood itself on these kind of um, 
emergent processes that arise from state organization and become a reinforcing force unto themselves. And, and I think to do that, it, it's going to take a lot more people having this kind of understanding of the reinforcing nature, not just of organizing bodies in general, but particularly um, of the state itself. Because, you know, it, it's like the classic thing, like the, the worker doesn't care if the boot that tramples on him is known as the worker's boot. Yeah, right. Um, and I don't, you know, socialist revolutions don't usually trample on the proletariat right away. But after a while, there there is kind of a distinct pattern of these structures of power becoming like kind of discrete things. And, and I think he says that in the text too. Like it's, it's something that arises... Uh, Oh, yes. Power and authority that has always existed in different forms, yet is somehow more than these particular actualizations. I think that's very important to remember that the state is just by definition a self-perpetuating kind of organization. And Newman has another quote that kind of really digging on the same idea, but I really love this last sentence that he that he delivers. Revolutions have only succeeded in replacing one form of authority with another. This is because revolutionary theory has never questioned the very condition, the idea of state authority, and therefore remains within its grasp. Little scruple was left about revolting against the existing state or overturning the existing laws, but to sin against the idea of the state, not to submit to the idea of law. Who would have dared that? The state can never be reformed because it can never be trusted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which is just a fuck it. that the state can never be reformed because it can never be trusted boom main idea yeah. right there <laughs> truer words have never been spoken really right and then i there's some great quotes there's a pretty lengthy reading but i think it's really a good breakdown of taking kind of like the classical anarchist approach and contraposing it with sterner and deleuze mm-hmm. and we're going to talk a little bit about Kropotkin here and Bakunin. Peter Kropotkin argued over a century ago that Marxist economic reductionism neglected the importance of state power. The state, according to the anarchists, has its own oppressive logic of self-perpetuation, and this was to a great extent autonomous from economic relations and class concerns. Bakunin argued that Marxism pays too much attention to the forms of state power, while not taking enough account of the way in which the state power op- the state's power operates. The Marxists do not know that despotism resides not so much in the form of the state, but in the very principle of the state and political power. And that's a direct co- quote from Bakunin. Kropotkin, too, argues that one must look beyond the present form of the state, and there are those who, like us, see in the state not only in its actual form and in all forms of domination that it might assume, but in its very essence, an obstacle to the social revolution. Oppression and despotism exist, in other words, to the very structure and symbolism of the state. It is not merely a derivative of class power. To neglect this autonomy and to use the state as a tool of, revolu- of the revolutionary class, as Marxists proposed, was therefore perilous. Anarchists believed it would only end up perpetuating state power in infinitely more authoritarian ways. Thus, Stirner's analysis of the state beyond of the state as a constituting a priori domination beyond economic and class concerns may be seen as an extension of the anarchist critique of state philosophies like Marxism. That's really interesting. And 
I gotta say, I'm not 100% sure if I feel like state power is totally discreet from class interest, right? But I think that it's worth noting the kind of continuum that functions between them, which is what I really think like the, the, the goal of this section of the piece is in a lot of ways, because it's a... I do think that that's very under-prioritized, kind of like an analysis of the way that state power just functions generally, you know, in all of the different situations that we've seen it thrown into. And Marxism has been in dialogue with, uh, you know, a lot of other non-class kind of issues. You know, there's Marxist feminism, there's, you know, Marxist, like, black liberation and, and national liberation fronts, and there, there are Marxist interpretations of, of different forms of theology. And, and just as there is that, I, I think that Saul is really hitting on an important thing here, which is that the Marxist critique of state power is at best very underdeveloped and at worst kind of misguided. And I, I think I would agree with that. Let me go into a little bit about Deleuze's critique here. <clears throat> According to Deleuze, the state is an abstract form of power, not wholly identifiable with its particular concrete realizations. Deleuze refers to a state form, an abstract model of power. The apparatus of the state is a concrete assemblage which realizes the machine of overcoding of a society. This machine in its turn is thus not the state itself. It is the abstract machine which organizes the dominant utterances and the established order of society, the dominant languages and knowledge, conformist actions and feelings, the segments which prevail over others. For Deleuze, the state is an abstract machine rather than concrete institution which essentially rules through more minute institutions and practices of domination. The state overcodes and rev regulates these minor dominations, stamping them with its imprint. What's important about this abstract machine is not the form in which it appears, but rather its function, which is the constitution of a field of interiority in which political sovereignty may be exercised. The state may be seen as a process of capture. Mm, that's very interesting. So the, the delusing concept of the state seems to be a little bit more concerned with the fact that like social organization exists independent of the state. In fact, the state is kind of presupposed by there already being an existing society. And then I assume what he means by overcoding is that the state kind of asserts its necessity within the society and then reformulates the social elements that kind of compose that society into uh, objects that further serve the state. And I guess this is in contrast to Stirner's uh, conception of the state, which is maybe more as a discrete kind of political entity or a, not even an entity, but like a, like a species of political power. Whereas maybe um, the Deleuzean concept doesn't think of it as something that is like a discrete category with various types, but as just kind of a, like a heuristic or a, or a descriptive name for something that that overcodes society in its own interests. And I guess those those end up being pretty similar, but I do think they have a little bit of a nuanced difference. And I, it's funny I find myself falling maybe more into the Deleuzean camp on this one. I think that there's maybe a little bit more to be gained from thinking about the state as something that is constantly in a mode of capture of the the people who live within it instead of 
Stirner's conception, which I guess regards the state more as like an idle master, even if it is still, even if it is still like a procedural conception of the state, the state still kind of like occupies a position that is in, that puts you in constant subordination to it. Whereas the delusion is a little more nuanced. It seems to say like the state draws you and your social norms and signifiers into itself and then kind of re uh, establishes you know what they signify in the world absolutely yeah that's how i read it as well let me get your your thoughts on this from the text as well and reference to deleuze and and sterner and the state the state is an apparatus which codes economic flows and flows of production organizing them into a mode for deleuze and indeed sterner the state cannot be attributed to the mode of product of production deleuze says it is not the state that presupposes a mode of production quite the opposite it is the state that makes production a mode. For Deleuze, there ha- for Deleuze, there has always been a state, the Erstadt, an eternal state which comes into existence fully formed at one stroke. I think that's very uh, salient, and I think that that's something that can be expanded a little bit and, and is, could, be, could be very vital to anarchist theory if interpreted in the right way, which is that... Um, the concept of the state is is often very closely tied in with the concept of policing and a big anarchist sticking point is that you know if you don't have police how do you keep order in a society how do you keep people from you know killing each other and preventive methods and and everything aside you know there's going to be um there's going to be something that functions as crime something that the general population doesn't want and this delusion concept of the erstadt this this already existing state right this thing that comes into existence all at one stroke or or to my mind that kind of indicates that it was already there it just had not been like conceptualized that like that there's always going to be that kind of person-to-person violence there's always going to be that kind of like these systems of control and organization but it's once they have a definite name and a definite body that they start to develop a character by which they recode or overcode all of the other structures around them and and i just think that's that's very important to remember that like there is no outsideness from human experience that human beings can get to there's this there's no alien state coming in that is totally outside the realm of human experience already all of this stuff is is built on and and built with the parts of things that we already had um so that's interesting i'm gonna have to look a little bit more into the concept of the erstat because i'm significantly intrigued by that that also brings or what you sort of just went over kind of reminds me too of that famous uh derrida quote about their there is nothing outside of the text. Mm-hmm. Somehow that just kind of fits that. That basically was the same idea, I think, in many ways. Yeah, well, it's like um, history is like a text without an author or like a, a text that writes itself. So you don't even have to let an author die. Or, or I guess that is to say, if we're all the author and we're all, you know, dead to the text, um, then that's that's kind of like a radically nominalist way to think about it you know there is there is nothing except the thing and to sterner to know that the thing is there is only a functional assessment in the first place but it all kind of like 
works out in the same way, which is that you end up with this conception of things like the state or policing or violence or what have you. Uh, I hate to say, but it's like a, it's like a holistic way of looking at it. You don't attribute to it anything that is outside of it and you don't let any component part of it become its totalizing identity. And it's only from that point that you end up with like honest and functional analysis of something as, as broad as, as the concept of a state or state power. And I think this, the next bit of reading I'm going to do from the text is really where I thought this article really kind of went hand in hand with the uh, Lacan article. Mm-hmm. So for Stirner, morality and rationality are discourses of the state and their function, rather than to liberate us from domination is to further subordinate us, no, subordinate the individual to state power. Therefore, according to Stirner, in order to wage war on the state, one must also wage war on the principles which provide political power with a moral and a rational foundation. That was a lot of alliteration there, a lot of P's, and then... Conversely, for Deleuze, like Stirner, Deleuze also believes that thought has complicity in state domination, providing it with a legitimate ground and consensus. Only thought is capable of inventing the fiction of a state that is universal by right and of elevating the state to de jure universality. Deleuze goes one one step further than Stirner, rather than seeing certain forms of thought as simply lending rational and moral authority that of the state, he contends that rational and moral discourses actually form part of the assemblage of the state. The state is not only a series of political institutions and practices, but also comprises multi- a multiplicity of norms, technologies, discourses, practices, forms of thought, and linguistic structures. It is not just these that these discourses provide a justification for the state, they are themselves manifestations of the state form and thought. The state is imminent in thought, giving it, in giving it ground, logos, providing it with a model that defines its goals, paths, conduits, channels, organs. The state has penetrated encoded thought, in particular, rational thought. It both depends on rational discourse for its legitimization and functioning, while in turn making these discourses possible. That's really interesting. It's like. Um... It's like he's kind of saying like there's no barrier between the state and the functions of society that it exerts influence over, I guess. So like if, if uh, what did he say, like linguistic structures and... Norms, technologies, discourses, practices, forms yeah, of thought. Exactly. So the, the, there's nothing that is outside of the state body. Like in the United States, you know, if you have technologies and forms of thought, your, your Silicon Valley guys, your, your Google, your whole, like, um, the, the, the incubating thing where you get like a bunch of VCs together, that's, that's part of the state assemblage too. That's something that's actively recoding American society and giving us cultural norms and expectations about how to interact with our technology and, and uh, I think that's very cool, like, because even as somebody who's as well-read as I like to think <laughs> that I am, I, I catch myself just thinking of the state as like a static body of 
Congress and right, the executive yeah. branch and the judiciary branch and stuff, the military, whatever. But it's not just that, you know, it's the way that you're taught in a public school. It's even the way that you're taught in a private school. It's the it's the 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 way that people expect you to act in a city versus a small town. It's all of these things are being actively overcoded all the time by the state and in turn being given the opportunity to be what they are by the the foundation that the state is laying. And and I don't know if this is exactly what he was saying here, but it seems like that logos that the state is providing for all of these kind of like social conventions and technological innovations and stuff is a bit like self-justifying, right? Like it's like, here's your logos from where you can have a quote unquote rational uh, argument or conversation about something. But in turn, it's only kind of, it's still rooted in that that very logo. So it's the, the logic of the state always seems to be self-evident. But when really what it is, is it's just self-reinforcing, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I thought this very much so tied into that sort of Lacanian psychoanalytic interpretation of sort of this, uh, the master-slave dialectic or Lacan spin on that where it's like, and he was in, in the Lacanian text, he's sort of, con, you know, I guess comparing or saying that sort of the anarch for the anarchists, the state is the the master that most must be overcome. So there's the, like, there's a necessity for the state has to exist for the anarchists to rebel against it or to want to destroy it, right? But they're using yeah. the same, like, the anarchists are sort of using the same logic that the state provides. Yeah, um, I think that's really interesting, and it has to do with something that I have often said about, like, being part of a counterculture. I've always thought that if you were acting directly in response to something all the time, you are still being ruled by it, right? So if I'm only an anarchist in positioning myself in opposition to a particular state or to just the idea of statehood in general, then it's going to take a state being there and 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 engaging in statecraft to make me be an anarchist. So I think that in order to escape this kind of like dualistic thing where you can only oppose something by kind of entering a game with it, we have to figure out a way to be in opposition to something by disregarding the kind of norms and forms of social control that it engages in. And I'm not saying like, you know, to disregard the American state would be to just like go fuck off <laughs> in the woods or something. But like we, we need a form of organization or a form of, of social kind of cultural progress, a meme, what have you, um, that encourages people to not think of themselves either as on the team of the state or a particular state or against a particular state, but to not have any respect for that dichotomy that exists between like you know the state body and the people that they supposedly represent like to me i don't hate a senator just because they're a senator i hate a senator because i know all of the particular things that come along with a senator's job i know how many lobbyists are up in their office you know and I, and i have all of these particular and concrete realizations that are not just one like totalizing idea of like me anti state anti state bad you know or state bad congressman bad you know and, and i think that remembering to always ground 
what you're doing in particularity is a good way to get away from the the totalizing element of that dialectic. And I had I had not known about Lacan's four discourses before. So the way that it is kind of in, in a weird way made into a dialectic between the master and slave and then through um what did he say the analyst was the was the third um discourse that was important to this uh process i found that very illuminating and also a, a little bit ironic because i felt like it was a it was like a deterritorialization that kind of re-territorialized itself like right away um it was like we're we're branching out from the dialectic and in order to do so we've created a new dialectic to critique it. And I wonder if this is what Foucault meant when he talked about Hegel standing motionless waiting for you, uh, no matter how much you try to oppose him. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting in reading the Lacan article that I had never considered him to be Hegelian at all, like I'd never made that connection. But in looking at, I guess maybe that is perhaps why Zizek is so fond of Lacan. Yeah, and I mean, I mostly know about Lacan through Zizek, and I don't even know um, Zizek that well, but uh, I always got the impression that Lacan was like, Lacan and I think uh, Badiou were like the really esoteric postmodernists, and that they were the ones who were like so, so disattached from the rest of like continentalist kind of traditions of philosophy but it's interesting through reading this piece to see the relationship between Lacan and Hegel well and and really everybody in Hegel because that's what's unified all three of the authors that we've talked about today and and Saul Williams is or Saul Goodman Saul Williams Saul <laughs> I love Saul Williams <laughs> right Saul <Yeah>. Newman <laughs> um but uh they that they all have a relationship whether it's fraught with with conflict or fraught with critique or whatever to the kind of Hegelian tradition. And I wonder if that's more of a commentary on the impact of Hegel's work or more of a commentary on, on how well the Prussian state liked <laughs> Hegel's work and, and popularized it. Right. Um, there is a, a bit that I wanted to read and this, this, I kind of la I'm labeling this piece or this little quote or section of text Anarchism must be rhizomatic, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, if anybody's familiar with Deleuze at all, you've heard of rhizomes and everything is a rhizome, right? But uh, for Deleuze, this model of thought is also the model for political power. The authoritarianism of one is inextricably linked with the authoritarianism of the other. Power is always aborescent. So instead of this authoritarian model of thought, Deleuze process, proposes a rhizomatic model which eschews essences, unities, and binary logic and seeks out multiplicities, pluralities, and becomings. The rhizome is an alternate, non-authoritarian image of thought based on the metaphor of grass, which grows haphazardly and imperceptibly as opposed to the orderly growth of the aborescent tree system. The purpose of the rhizome is to allow thought to shake off its models, make its grass grow, even locally at the margins. The rhizome, in this sense, defies the very idea of a model. It is endless, haphazard multiplicity of connections, which is not dominated by a single center or place, but is decentralized and plural. It embraces four characteristics, connection, heterogeny, multiplicity, and rupture. That's awesome. And it's basically like the rhizomatic form of organization is almost 
in many ways a description of a lot of already existing anarchist forms of organization. You could argue that the informal anarchist federation is set up kind of like this, although I would call them more of a cell structure than a rhizome, although there's a lot of similarities there, and I guess they're both biology metaphors, so that's pretty cool. Um, and then you can think of, you know, Rojava is very much like this. Uh, they're very explicitly kind of confederated, and they, they let each individual um, kind of part of the overarching body be in charge of itself and adapting to its individual kind of piece of terrain. And I think that's very, very uh, apt. You know, Zapatistas can be kind of expressed this way or similar to this, I should say, as well. And I think that's very apt because the the rhizome is like, you know, you think about grass. That's the your, your classic rhizome. And maybe you have a whole field of very homogenous, beautiful grass that has grown in the space between two buildings. But you know, a ways down, still connected to that same, you know, rhizome, the, the, the root network, you might have just one little super robust bit of grass growing between a crack in the sidewalk. And that is the, that's the revolutionary potential that is often ignored um, by what I would say maybe are more like teleological, teleological or, or kind of certain um, forms of historical interpretation and, and philosophical interpretation. And I think that that's, that's what in a lot of ways has given anarchists the tenacity that they need to maintain political relevance, despite the fact that most of the, organ, you know, most of the revolutions that they participated in were overwhelmingly Marxist-Leninist by the time that they um, were completed. And I feel very inspired by that. You know, I, I, I feel very much like... Um, gratified by the idea of an organizational structure where I could work with other people and have the benefits of being on a team, but not be either subordinated to the will of someone else or put in a position where I have to make others subordinate to my will, both of which I find extremely distasteful. I think here too, what is interesting is, and this also ties into the Lacan piece is the the difference between the sort of sort of aborescent logic of of the state and this new rhizomatic logic that I think anarchism really has to embrace to truly overthrow or you know what I mean to really create a new order that it's not just going to re-implement that same dialectic of master slave. Yeah. Well, the saddest thing would be if we got like a really coherent anarchist revolution going, we overturned the state form across the entire world only to find out that there was some greater, uh, you know, underlying kind of contradiction that we still hadn't escaped. But the reason that I like anarchism and, and I think what both of these pieces kind of gesture towards is that in, anar in most anarchist circles, there's kind of a recognition of may, the maybe futility of anarchist organization or, or the lack of you know, coherence or, or power that it has. But there is also within that uh, an inability to be demolished, right? Like anarchist gains may be tiny, but, but they're lasting. And it, as an anarchist out in the world, you know, as, 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 a, as a blade of grass as, as a rhizome surrounded by arborescent trees, I often find myself feeling like Bobby Hill from that <laughs> King of the Hill episode where he goes to the military camp and Cotton locks him in the hole for three days and he brings him out and he's just like, 
totally unchanged. And Cotton's like, that kid's just a big pile of mush, ain't he? And Hank is like, you know, maybe mush isn't so bad. You can smash it and stomp it down, but it just stays mush. You can try and pile it up, but it just falls back down into mush in a weird way. Mush has the edge. And I think that if we really monopolized on that weird way, or if we gave everybody that edge and we let them know, you know, like the that state thought and state power is just this thing trying to press your mush up into the, sh- the shape that it finds pleasing. Um, when in reality, you're going to be so much be- better served by just being the mush that you are, you know, as grainy or as coarse or as chunky of a mush as you might be. I think it's interesting, too, in the sense of, you know, the one of the common criticisms about anarchists is that they're, you know, we're liberals. And <laughs> which I th- I think is is actually kind of a I don't know it's interesting I in the sense that that's sort of the danger that I think that is almost inherent in using the logic of the state to overturn the state and rather this that's why this sort of what Deleuze is describing is more of the toolkit that we need to follow rather than falling back into this like liberal logic that undergirds our current order. And the danger, yeah. and that is always being the danger of falling back into that same logic and instead of creating something entirely new from the ground up and conceptualizing society in a rhizomatic fashion rather than this hierarchical, you know, arborescent structure. But I mean, so I think that's like, also fundamentally like that's what anarchar- anarchism's goal is, right? Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, well, it's like... If you look at like the the political compass as we typically look at it, right? There's like left to right, you know, politically, I guess that's egalitarianism and then libertarianism to authoritarianism in a lot of ways can be interpreted as like, you know, rhizomatic organization versus arborescent um, organization. But in another way, I think that there's almost it kind of functions as like a Z axis because you can you can have a rhizomatic vanguard it's just a little bit of a strange arrangement and i think you can have an arborescent anarchist cell as well um but there's definitely still like there's a relationship there there's like a line of best fit that you can see going across the interrelation of those two planes and i think that that kind of superimposition of those two ideas and and getting intimate with their similarities and differences and where they are mostly the same and where they diverge and what the importance of those divergences is is kind of a, a woefully underexamined thing not just in leftist theory generally but specific to anarchism there's a lot of um there's a lot of talk about hierarchy and domination but we don't often talk about the social forms that underpin hierarchy and domination as general social phenomenons. We tend to compartmentalize them and just think about them as their specific kind of social implications, I guess. I'd like to, uh, if you're cool, fully move over to the Lacan piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I want to read a bit here, sort of switching gears just a little bit, but somewhat staying on that sort of master-slave dynamic. Lacan and was most notoriously demonstrated in his address to university students in the May 1968 uprising in Paris. Revolutionary aspirations have only one possibility, always to end up in the discourse of the master. Experience has proven this. What you aspire to as revolutionaries 
is a master and you will have one. <laughs> <laughs> He's real cocky right? about that, yeah, isn't he? <laughs> that is a hell of a quote. But I think that is the danger. And I mean, you can, I think you can sort of understand why someone like Lacan would be less than optimistic about the ability of revolutionary change to not reconstruct itself as a different form of of authority. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to think that the various leftist uprisings that happened at the beginning of the 1900s were probably so, so formative to Lacan. Um, I mean, he would have been a teenager during the, the Russian revolutions, and then he would have been uh, a, a man in his 20s during all of the kind of fallout across Europe from all of the different organizations coming together and falling apart. So I think there's uh, definitely a, a bit of a bitter pessimism in the way that Lacan kind of looks at uh, particularly Marxist organization, but I think just generally revolutionary organizing. Uh, and I, I'm i of two minds about it. I kind of want to tell Lacan to shut up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I kind of want to just be like, well, yeah, I mean, sure, but you got to keep trying it, right? Like it's better than just rolling over and dying. Right. But after a fashion, um, and the, I think the piece kind of goes into this too. They, they say like you can read it two ways. You can think that he's just being totally dismissive of revolutionary organizing, or you can say it looks like Lacan has kind of identified that there's this hole in, in revolutionary thought that kind of makes it uh, inadequate to, actual, to, to, to really truly tackle the ideas of hierarchy and exactly. domination, ideas that are so core to not just anarchism, but even like, you know, the theorized full communism that comes at the end of a Marxist-Leninist program or, or what have yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's some other great quotes, though, here, here in the piece that I want to read. In other words, the revolutionary is asked, is the authority you contest not already imminent in your position as a re revolutionary, and will your revolution not lead to a perpetuation of this authority? How can radical politics be reconfigured in such a way that it can avoid the reaffirmation of power and authority? This was the anarchist question. To some degree, it is also the Lacanian question. Does anarchism itself reaffirm the authority it transgresses? In seeking to overcome the position of the master, will it install a new master in its place? That is to say, is anarchism also caught up in the authoritarian discourse of the master? The very discourse it ostensibly seeks to abolish. It would be, it would seem that from a Lacanian perspective, there is a structural link between the position of the revolutionist and the position of the master, one implying the other. It is precisely this hidden connection between revolutionary desire and the domination and contests between transgression and authority that is the central problem of revolutionary theories, political theories like anarchism, and which must be uncovered and explored if radical politics is to avoid this perpetuation of power. Uh, that's, that's a lot to think about. And I know you said we were going to move all the way over to the Lacan <laughs> piece, but I think, this, I think this ties in interestingly to that Deleuze and Erstadt we were talking about. Uh, Lacan is kind of saying that in order to be an anti-state actor, you have to stand in opposition to a state and like that the master and the slave have this dialectic where they, they need the lack in one yes. another to keep existing. Exactly. But to, to me, the dialectic of the master is very similar to the Erstadt. It's, it's there in perpetuity. Uh -huh. 
And until we have a name for it, sure, we can't target it. We can't kind of conceptualize where to direct our energies. But just like just like violence is a problem that will never be solved, I don't think we'll just have increasingly less less poorly planned solutions to it. I also think that the master-slave dialectic is the kind of thing that um, that there's maybe no kind of intrinsic dialectical resolution to, but that as a society we can put tools in our kit over time that let us kind of mitigate the negative effects of that that dissonance. And I think that as an anarchist, that's really what I'm striving to do more than achieve like i don't want to complete the cycle of german idealism <laughs> or materialism i i just want to recognize that those cycles are maybe fundamentally incomplete and that if i'm living in a world with fundamentally incomplete kind of natural or historical cycles then i need to act accordingly and sure that's a confusing position to be <laughs> in but i mean if 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 you woke up in a strange place without your clothes on, that would be a confusing position to be in too. You still have to figure out what to right. do. Yeah, exactly. So that that's I think that's very kind of salient and and speaks to a, a part of my anarchism that I didn't really have uh, terms for before. And I thought you made a really astute connection with that dial the master slave dialectic and the Erstad. I thought that was actually quite brilliant to make that connection. But I did feel, like you said, like these pieces are so, like these definitely, like reading these together, I think is the perfect, like the, this is the perfect, the Lacan piece is the perfect complement to that original one. Because it's kind of drawing out on that same, same set of ideas, in particular that like revolutionary desire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, this just convinces me more than anything that we need an anarchist scissor. <laughs> Pretty much. We just need like a, a sniffly, like kind of, you can't tell if he's angry or happy <laughs> dude who motions too much. I mean, Bookchin is dead, so we got to come up with a new... I mean, I'm, I'm working on this. I, uh, I just need to do more <laughs> DMT, man, and then uh, I'll be yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me read a little bit more to just kind of hammering on the same idea here. What is it? What this really disguises is the internal deadlock of desire itself, and I think you even kind of touched on this too as it allows the slave to function as if this deadlock did not exist precisely by blaming it on an external barrier. In this way, the master comes to represent the slave's own impossible jouissance, the theft of the slave's enjoyment, which is a satisfaction that he never had in the first place, which I think you're onto something there with that earthshot and your, your mm -hmm. comments on the, uh, the dialectic here. The obsessional neurotic is a good example of this, According to Lacan, the obsessional engages in a continual deferment or putting off of his desire, awaiting the master's death, thus putting the master in the place of the impossibility of his desire. Yet in doing so, he confines himself to a morbid existence, a sort of living death. Wow. <laughs> That's really good. And it makes me want to read Ikritz, or however you say yeah. that, uh, which I know is a, a, very, a very commonly referenced piece. Uh, that's, yeah, that's so smart. And, and, and I think that the, when he talks about that internal deadlock of desire, that's something that as anarchists, we really, really have to remember. It's like, you can't just feel like you've accomplished something or you've reached one of your goals when you reach full anarchist communism or when you've dethroned the state and your boss and your dad or whatever. It's like, there, there are always going to be points al along the way. Even if we had a successful worldwide anarchist revolution, we would still have all kinds of 
difficult and confusing and weird new points of departure for social friction and and for you know tensions to rise between different groups of people whether it's over geographical claims or or whatever it is and a lot of people uh I guess maybe this is a divergence from exactly what the piece is talking about, but a lot of people seem to think that anarchists are super idealist and that they, that we think we can bring about like an imminent revolution that'll be here by like 2025, like full anarchist yeah. communism by 2025. Um, but I really feel like I'm an anarchist more because like, I just, I don't feel like we're ever going to get to that point. Like even a successful Marxist Leninist revolution, a successful trot revolution, a successful anarchist revolution, they're all going to end in places that still have problems and still have some of the old contradictions, some new contradictions that we weren't ready to, to look at or didn't have the tools to see coming under capitalism. And I just, I really think it's very salient what he said here about, about imagining that there's an external barrier that's keeping you from being connected with like the, the full richness of experience um, that you can have. And I don't know if maybe my, my recommendation is to always hold on to that full richness of experience while recognizing that it's incomplete or to recognize that you're yearning for something that you'll never get, but to strive for it anyway, because other gratifying things and opportunities will will come along along the way but i at the end of the day what i really like that both of these pieces did is they they really peel back that veneer of the state as like just as just a, a concrete entity that just does a thing and operates like a starbucks right. or or whatever and it, it's not that it's it, it's a confluence of, of social norms and and forms of rule and hierarchies and and family arrangements and technologies and Logic, all of this language, very very complicated stuff. signifier yeah exactly. all, all of it and to hammer on this further but this is just such a great set of text here is like what the state as an external prohibition is really hiding is the fact that the desire for self-realization of the subject is ultimately impossible that indeed there is no rational or moral human essence that has been repressed by political authority and is just waiting to be revealed, that in fact at the heart of human subjectivity there is an impossible lack or emptiness that cannot be overcome. In this sense, the state in anarchist discourse performs a necessary function in disguising this lack, operating as an excuse so that a confrontation with this lack can be avoided. Paradoxically, then, the existence of political authority allows revolutionary desire to be disdain, sustained. Rather, I could, re I could realize my full humanity if, it, if only it were not for the state that stands in my way. And then further on, along Foucauldian lines, the state functions as a way of disguising the fact that power has already colonized the subject. This presents a fundamental problem for anarchism. Its revolutionary desire to overcome the state will always be thwarted as it belies a more troubling need for the state to sustain its desire and mask its own impossibility. <laughs> I think that, that ties in really well to um, something Malatesta said in his piece, The Anarchist Revolution, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but the, the, the gist of it was just that like, to have an anarchist, an anti-state revolution, we're going to have to participate in so many different revolutions of so many different characters uh, just to make the kind of gains and get the pieces in place and get the education uh, out to people that we want to have. And 
so I think that that and this are kind of like two sides of the same coin, right? Like if you, if you're in a perpetual struggle that, that really kind of functionally, and, and if, if we are to take the Lacanian kind of interpretation of it here, by its very nature, does not have an end. There is no point of overcoming state power. Then it's, it's going to end up being this long, drawn-out process of, you know, to, to use Deleuze in terms of, of deterritorializing and getting re-territorialized, of re-deterritorializing <laughs> and getting re re-territorialized and, and so on ad absurdum. Um, and so as an anarchist, that can be like very disheartening um, unless you're like really like a wake up in the morning, <laughs> let's get this bread kind of anarchist. And then I guess it's reassuring because you know your hustle will never be over. To me, I'm kind of, I'm kind of on the fence, but um, also, you know, I don't do anarchism because I, because I think I'm going to win. I do it because it's, a, I think it's a very honest representation of me as a human being and my politics and my interpretation of the world's politics. And I think that maybe, maybe this is just naivete, but I think in a lot of ways that giving, letting people know that, that those interpretations exist is maybe more important than, than having a, a quote unquote, like super effective position in society or, or what have you. It's a, yeah. It's a very grim prognosis from Lacan. <laughs> he's he's quite the pessimist isn't he i kind of yeah like I, uh, i'm kind of on board with it too here um and on that note let me read this quote from uh, i think this is seminar 17 a long time ago i observed that for the sentence of the old father Kemarazov, if god is dead then everything is permitted the conclusion that forces itself upon us in the text of our experience is that the response to god is dead is that nothing is permitted anymore <laughs> uh, wow yeah if god uh if god were real it would be necessary to make sure that he didn't let us do anything uh mikhail Bakunin. <laughs> but then we're getting into uh the piece goes into the four discourses which nominally are going to be that of the university master hysteric and analyst the discourse of the wait the discourse of the master is a discourse that embodies self mastery the attempt to const constitute an autonomous ego one whose identity is secure in a complete self knowledge this discourse is characterized by the dominance of the master signifier through which the subject sustains the illusion of self identity of being identical with his own signifier in order to sustain this self identity this discourse excludes the unconscious the knowledge that it is not known as this would jeopardize the ego's sense of clarity. Therefore, the discourse of the master stands in a particular relation of authority to knowledge, seeking to dominate it and exclude from consciousness the knowledge of the unconscious. That's interesting. I don't know if I understand exactly what that means. Yeah. I, I thought the part about the subject sustaining the illusion of self-identity um, by being identical with his own signifier was very interesting and kind of hearkened back to that thing I was talking about with Sterner, talking about like, you know, if your name is Ludwig, yeah, you true. are not yeah. Ludwig. Okay. You are not just you are not just the signifier. And I like that Lacan is kind of bringing us up uh, in this form of thought where we we recognize that we're going to get resubsumed into this discourse of the master 
no matter um, what we do, but that maybe like the first step in, in maybe breaking free of that discourse of the master is to no longer hold the signifier that you've been kind of granted by this discourse as your identity anymore. And, and that I think that gels well with what I was saying about not just reacting to something, but but existing in like a in a headspace that's outside of it that has a disregard for it. You know, you are not your signifier, but you are also not not your signifier. You should have a healthy disrespect for your signifier. And and to me that's that's the real like politically liberating point of departure for for revolutionary thought, which is really just being inconsiderate, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Let's. Uh, I'll interrogate what the text has to say about this from from Lacan. The only way to undermine the master for Lacan is through the discourse of the analyst. The position of the master is really the position of castration, as he is cut off from his object, from enjoyment. What the master discourse conceals then behind its posture of certainty and fullness of identity is a fundamental lack. Now he goes on about the hysteric as well. The position of the hysteric is characterized by an identification with an unsatisfied desire. Because the agent here realizes her lack, the lack of the object of desire that will complete her identity, her position is characterized by a demand to know who she is and what her desire is. This demand is always addressed to the other, and it is because of this nature of this of uh, because of the nature of this demand that the hysteric makes a master out of the other. The hysterics demand is addressed to the master who is expected to provide an answer to the hysterics desire. However, due to the impossibility of satisfying this desire, the answer that the master provides is always wrong or inadequate. In order to keep his desire alive, the hysteric therefore has a vested interest in sustaining the lack in the master. The hysteric is always testing the knowledge and authority of the master who and trying to conceal his lack and shore up his position of authority, provide answers that only expose his impotence and lack all the more. The hysteric increasingly comes to see the master as an impediment to the realization of her desire. However, at the same times, she does not sustain the position of the master in order to sustain her desire, for once that desire is satisfied, it collapses. Wow. <laughs> so that, that just brings, like, occupy to my mind, really, um, like if I, if I had to think of something that filled the role of the hysteric there, I guess it would be that like that kind of unformed, like why, why are things this way? You know, why are things so bad? And then the master, you know, the United States government or the corporations or what have you are kind of obliged to give, give response, but the response is always an inadequate one. And then the hysteric has a new kind of thing to coalesce around and and be in this permanent kind of like dysfunctional back and forth with the master that kind of establishes their their dialectic i don't know how much i subscribe to the kind of universality of this i think that the way in which we react with structures of power can't be painted with quite this broad of a stroke although it is a relationship that I've seen play out historically many times. And, and so I, I think there is some validity to it. It just makes me wonder, um, because it's, 
it's that tension that lays the groundwork for this third uh, discourse to come in, the, the analyst. And who in American politics do we have that can fill that role? And is that maybe why, is, is our lack of an, of an analytical discourse spirit in the United States maybe the reason we've never been able to get on, get beyond the kind of the, the proto-revolutionary form of leftist organization? Very well could be. Yeah, what, what does he say here? He says, uh, given this intractability of authority, how is it possible to affect social change without merely reaffirming it? So that's your classic anarchist question there. How, how is it possible, in other words, to escape the master? The only way to undermine the master for Lacan is through the discourse of the analyst. However, this process can only begin once the intermediary discourse of the hysteric is passed through. What is the partic particular relationship then between the master and hysteric, and why does it lead to the analyst? According to Brocker, because of the dominance of the S1 in master discourse, there's produced an excess of enjoyment, or the, the A or plus de jure. So that's the... the surplus jouissance I hear so much about, <laughs> for which there is no place in this discourse and which is therefore excluded and projected onto the slave. So it seems like in the master discourse, the master is never allowed to have his own surplus enjoyment. It has to be reprojected back out onto the slave discourse in the relationship so that because that is the mechanism by which he maintains the two-way street, right? That's the, that's the lane moving from the master to the slave on the two-way street that keeps their relationship firm and allows the master dialectic to continue, right? Because the, the master doesn't exist without the slave and the slave doesn't exist without the master. Just as if there were nothing to rebel against, I wouldn't be an anarchist. I would just be a guy at home. Um, and so I think that's really, really interesting. Um, it's, I have trouble conceptualizing exactly what the defining features of this analyst discourse are, though. And I wonder if I can quickly Google it. Oh, so it's literally a, um, it's a metaphor for a psychoanalyst or, or a therapist. And I guess that makes sense. So. What Lacan is really saying is that we live in a society, <laughs> and instead of going to therapy, we should get the society therapy. Makes sense. <laughs> uh, I thought this was uh, an interesting bit here. Let us try to understand this process in political terms, that this, in terms of the possibility of anarchism or radical politics generally, escaping the master and traversing the political fa fa fantasy, we have seen that classical anarchism as a radical political philosophy is sustained not only by the idea of a rational social object which determines the revolutionary process, but also by the I utopian idea of society on the other side of power. A society, in other words, without the distortions and dislocations wrought by power and authority. Anarchism must confront what is so disturbing to its own idealizations, that is, the desire for power at the heart of human subjectivity. This desire for power is something that is both acknowledged yet disavowed in classical anarchism. For, ex for instance, Bakunin talks about the power principle. Every man carries within himself the germs of the lust for power, and every germ, as we know, because of a basic law of life, necessarily must develop and grow. That's really interesting. I. I feel like I have such 
an intrinsically less um, pessimistic view of like human nature. I'm doing air quotes <laughs> for the listeners of human nature or of whatever you want to call it. Um, then, then it seems like Lacan and even Deleuze and Stirner do. Cause I don't, I don't know if people really do have the germ of a, of a greed for power naturally in them. I think that that's something that is ingrained in us during our, our essentially powerless childhoods living in, you know, capitalist or feudalist or, or whatever hierarchical kind of structure that you grew up in. I mean, if I had been socialized in an environment where there were not people exercising arbitrary authority over me and arbitrarily kind of restricting my ability to have or do certain things, um, I think I would have a, a much more kind of balanced and healthy relationship with like social boundaries and with how it's appropriate to interact with other people and not and not place yourself above them or subordinate yourself to them. And it really makes me wonder if if that that germ that who was it Bakunin, Bakunin yeah. was talking about is really so much part of human nature or if it's part of a or if it's a reaction to subjugation, right? Like if all you know is to be walked on, then all you can imagine besides being walked on is to be the one walking um, and not have the tools to be able to envision a, a universe in which nobody is stepping on yeah. each other just out of you know courtesy or whatever. My conception of this was more so in this sort of psychoanalytic tradition of this is this is something rooted in in the unconscious and our unconscious more so than our conscious behavior which is all the more is why it's so dangerous and why one must be on the guard against this sort of tendency or this so you think it's 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 less of a um it's less of an ego superego kind of relationship and more of a reptile brain kind of like learned evolutionary behavior. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's, it's, I think there's probably some weight or to there's, that. you know, and having some relationship to that lack and the, that fundamental lack and then that master slave dialectic as well, playing into that too, somehow. And I don't have a clean way to make that, <laughs> to tie that together intellectually well, right now, but I don't know. I feel like there's some, there's a connection there that I'm just not able to articulate very well. Well, I feel like uh, something that even you know liberals and even conservatives will will note is that as long as they believe in evolution, I guess, is that we are running very very new software on very very old <laughs> hardware. Our our bodies did not evolve in the last hundred years. Our bodies evolved over the last hundreds of thousands of years, and so I think in a lot of ways, uh, and I don't know how one-to-one -one, this translates to people's like social expectations now but we are still wired to expect scarcity to expect uh inability to have access to food to expect whatever we have to be taken from us at any moment to expect life to always be very very transient and we live uh in more and more concrete times right if there's an upheaval in 2019 it's very very large it's very rare that something small like a, a small group of people in like you know western arizona would suddenly 
be without food. That's not the kind of scarcity that we face anymore. We face a, like a totalizing, very like international political form of scarcity, and it comes with a scarcity of access to things that are more important in today's age than than we have the kind of uh, physical training to be ready for things like political agency and and upward mobility access to education you know these aren't things that our reptile brain knows how to ask for and so i think in a lot of ways that the 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 real usefulness of these pieces is that by giving somebody the tools to to let their conscious mind have a bit more of a relationship with their unconscious or, or subconscious mind is a good way to peel back that veneer of not just capitalist realism but of you know statist realism or of like social realism of, of the the overcoating of society by the state and capital yeah absolutely <clears throat> i think there's a uh, interesting point we can sort of wrap up the conversation on here um going kind of moving off of that but what does this mean for anarchism and emancipative politics generally simply that it must abandon the fantasy of utopian fullness and recognize that the other is lacking that there is no natural or essential com commonality that holds society together in other words what radical politics must acknowledge and indeed affirm is that there is no dialectical process or underlying social logic that determines the political that the political is always radically undergrounded, indeterminate, and contingent. Wow. That's really <laughs> awesome. Um, and I've, <clears throat> I've said this many times. I don't think that there is a unifying tenet of human history besides that it has humans in it. <laughs> yeah, you true. know, I don't think that there is like a... Uh, there's, there's many lines of best fit of history, and none of them are like an actual one-to-one -one representation of reality. They're all kind of like loose simulations at best. And, you know, uh, on the topic of like what is scientific or not, because I think that has a bit of bearing on the way that we perceive certainty in things like political philosophy and philosophy generally, um, I think that it's uh, the... Uh, how do I want to put it? The this contingent nature of p politics and history is something that makes us very, very uncomfortable and much in the same way that people kind of run to a religiosity to assuage like uncertainty in, in, in their personal or in their spiritual life. So too do we kind of rush to understanding politics as something that has an objective grounding, something that exists outside of the individual and their interaction with other individuals and is and is more of a concrete force in the world than just this emergent thing from social interactions that kind of takes on its own incorporeal body. And and when you remember that, you end up having a much more not just nuanced approach to politics, but I think you end up being more interested in specific solutions to specific problems. And I think that that's, that's what really gets us progress. You know, I, if you're a Leninist, if you're an anarchist, even if you're a fucking liberal, if you have specific solutions to specific problems and I can get behind them with you, then we can make actual headway against, you know, the master dialectic or, or the Godhead or, or the state body that's totalizing and overcoding our lives. Um, but if we don't, if we if we 
stay in this world of imagining that everything is is grounded and has a concrete explanation, a concrete source, um, and has predictable patterns of behavior, then we end up making all kinds of wrong moves and not being aware of material conditions and, and social and ideological conditions in the moment uh, anymore. I lied. There, there's two more quotes I want to read. <laughs> well, but, let's uh, get them. This is a good uh, piece. I want to get your thoughts on these two because this is sort of like flying in the face, I think, in some ways to what you just said. Um, okay. Transformative and emancipative political, political projects can never hope to transform the whole of society. There will always be something that eludes them. Look, and then according to the Lacanian realization that all social practices, even revolutionary ones, are part of and indeed dependent upon institutional and discursive structures themselves. Which is again, Lacan being eminently <laughs> fucking pessimistic about the possibility of changing anything. So Lacan is doing a very interesting thing here, which I like because he, in a way, he's gesturing to the fact that there will always be a greater narrative or that even if you are attacking the, the, the most totalized version of the narrative that you can, as soon as you create something that's outside of it, it's going to create a version of that that is a part of it and then you are kind of instantaneously resubsumed into it. But I think that maybe Lacan is kind of hung up on this idea of the master dialectic being a discrete thing that exercises control over everything else. When I would almost say that you have to be a bit more Spinozist yeah. about it and say that if the master dialectic is a resubsumption of everything, if it's a, if it's a totality, it's a spook, um, or, right? <laughs> yeah, then it doesn't then it doesn't real, right? Then it's just then it's just the sum of things anyway, and then there's no actual point in looking at the looking at it as this discrete thing. So to me, what you have to do from there is you have to say, well, these behaviors, these these patterns of control that Lacan is talking about, they definitely exist, but we can't be thinking about them as if our signifier for them and them themselves are one and the same and don't have anything, you know, the Venn diagram is a circle when in, in reality, the Venn diagram is this, this, these four or five circles, like weirdly moving in and out of each other that have vague and blurry borders and stuff. And, um, yeah, so I don't know. I think, I think Lacan is just too <laughs> pessimistic. I, I think, I mean, uh, he's going to, I mean, he's dead now, but at the time of writing this, I would have said to Lacan, like, yeah, but you're going to wake up tomorrow. <laughs> You're going to have to do something, right? Like, <laughs> can't just keep writing. And he, he probably would just say, well, I can't actually just keep writing. I'm a tenured professor. You'll have to check out. He has a, he's got a diagram, I think, and it's about desire. And it's got like all the S1. It actually kind of resembles um, almost like an arthropod, like a lobster almost. Yeah. Okay. Check out his model for desire. You could probably Google it and, yeah. and find it. But yeah, definitely like refer references one of those old looking like the uh, ancestral arthropod, like the ancestor to the, oh, yeah. um, like the scorpion, or I forget what they're called. Yeah, like when you find the the ancient fossils in the Pokemon games, and the one that eventually hatches into a Kabutops. <laughs> That's what this <laughs> looks <For sure>. like. <laughs> but uh, I, 
I know we've been going for a while. This is really interesting. I know we've been going for almost two hours. Um, I don't know if you do you want to maybe shoot the shit for a little bit, or do you uh, do you have to? Oh, time flies. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we can shoot the shit a little uh, bit. So I, I'm kind of interested to hear. I've seen you posting on social media and so forth that you've been doing some speed running shit. Is that is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I don't really speed run as, as such because I'm not like trying to play games for the best time. Uh, I did do that with Secret of Evermore for a little while, like last year and and a little bit before that. But mostly, I've just been picking up uh, Kaizo Mario hacks, which are Kaizo means rearranged in Japanese. And a few years ago, this guy uh, T Takamoto, who's a very mysterious part of the Super Mario World <laughs> community, made a hack for his friend, and he called it Kaizo Mario World, or Rearranged Mario World. But it was stupid difficult, like an insanely difficult hack, and it was one of the, it was like the first hack at this difficulty level. So from then on out, uh, Kaizo has just kind of come to mean ultra-difficult uh, in the Super Mario World community. And so I've been downloading these ROMs and patching them onto Super Mario World and, and trying to beat them. And I'm nowhere near as talented as my heroes, <laughs> Grand Pooh Bear and, and Carl Sagan 42 <laughs> and Barbarous King and stuff. But I do, uh, I do pretty good for, for an intermediate, and uh, people seem to be enjoying watching me on the Twitch stream. So if anybody's listening to this and you want to watch me play video games, you can check out twitch.tv slash beepbeeplettucepod. And uh, remember to check out my co-host Bryn and Chris's upcoming uh let's play series on means tv called left trigger but yeah that's that's what i do and then once in a while um i i've been trying to bust out rpgs and do playthroughs where i talk about the politics of the world that oh, i'm in. so i'm doing Chron chrono trigger right now tell me about chrono trigger i'm not all that familiar but i i've seen you posting about it a lot yeah, it's the greatest game ever made, and they gave it a sequel, but it wasn't really a sequel, but it was still a really good game. Um, and it, it, it's like, it starts off like a very typical RPG. You wake up, and you're talking to your mom, and there's, you're in Guardia Kingdom, and there's like monsters and stuff. As it goes on, you discover things like magic exists in this universe, but it died out after a certain time, and then there's like there's time travel and for such an old game it's like really interesting to see that the developers took care like if i go to 600 ad and i open a chest and then i go to a thousand ad 400 years in the future and i walk up to that chest it'll be open and the thing will be taken out of it but if i go get the chest in a thousand ad first i can get the item twice and there's all this cool shit like that like there's a magic pendant that reacts with these sealed boxes and they have very very nice items inside so what you do is you go to the past you expose the pendant to the box you don't open the box and then you go to the future and there will be a souped up version of that oh, item interesting. so it's just it's just a really great game um the battle system is super balanced and fair and fun and very easy to use um, it's, it's literally just a little timer that scrolls across and then you're, you're ready to attack after that. It's simple HP and, and MP system for health and mana. And it's, uh, the guy who did all of the character designs and most of the, s the set designs, I believe, is Akira Toriyama, the guy from Dragon Ball. Interesting. And a lot of people don't know that, but I was never even like a Dragon Ball yeah, fan. I, I but like, I as either. a kid, I remember seeing Dragon Ball stuff and being like, their, their hair looks like the characters from Chrono Trigger. <laughs> what, uh, what platform did it start out on? Uh, SNES. Okay. But with the fans, it has a very rabid fan base. Uh, and one of the reasons I actually got into leftism originally is because I got really pissed off about copyright <laughs> law and intellectual property. Because as a 
hardcore chrono fan i was really excited about this project coming out where some fans had gotten together and they were going to code a like playstation one graphics like isometric 3d graphics style version of chrono trigger that's like a 100 percent faithful recreation of the original just with like really cool like for the time 3d graphics and square sent them a cease and desist and then another one and then another one until they eventually did stop and so i got interested in looking up chrono trigger fan projects and the rom hacks never got canceled but everything that was not a straight up rom hack uh and there's a there's still a page you can go to i believe if you just look for like all of the all of the chrono trigger fan projects that have been canceled uh there's like 25 of them and so square enix uh does that they keep fans from making their own versions of the game so that they can keep porting it to new systems in shittier and shittier versions, I might add. The original PS1 port was fine. They added a bunch of cool anime cutscenes. They added a couple of bonus endings, I think, some basic shit. It was very, very nice. Then when they ported it to the DS, they just straight up moved the PS1 version over to the DS. Then they made a mobile version, which was a shittier port of the SNES. And then they made a PC version that, get this, was a port of the mobile <laughs> version. Jesus. But yeah, John, uh, thanks for filling me in on the on the Chrono Trigger um, <laughs> timeline and all the all the ports and intrigue and so forth, the discourse, if you will. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get canceled by the Chrono Trigger community, <laughs> right? Uh, but I'll let you. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up. I'll let you go ahead and plug all your shit. You've got a lot of a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I uh, yeah. My name is John Paul Zigderman. Uh, I'm a co-host on a really great podcast called Beep Beep Lettuce. I have a solo podcast called This Is Not a LibriVox Recording that is a little bit more like what we did today. It's like theory and kind of dry. Uh, Beep Beep Lettuce is much more like dick jokes and, and, and smoking weed and stuff, but they're both really fun. You can find me on Facebook as just my full name. You can find me on Twitter at, at FacebookVillain. Uh, you can see me game on the Beep Beep Twitch at twitch.tv slash Beep Beep Lettuce Pod. <laughs> You can listen to my fucking footwork music that I barely even release anymore at luminairepgh.bandcamp.com. It's spelled just like Chrono's strongest attack from Chrono Trigger. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's probably five. Follow follow me on Instagram at beepbeepleaf. But no, in all seriousness, thank you so much for having me on the pod. Uh, this is just really really fun it's so rare that i get to talk to somebody about theory for a couple of hours and and <laughs> get to right. broadcast it to the world so this is just such a treat yeah uh yeah we'll definitely have to do it again um i think it's a good format i'm really enjoying the anarchist library for this sort of stuff it makes it real nice like oh yeah the articles are pretty you know they're not super super long they're pretty easily digestible makes for good conversation it seems to be a wealth of really interesting stuff and I've actually found a number of these different kind of post-structuralist anarchist the theory combinations that like, that's my, like I said, that's kind of my jam. It's like, <laughs> it's like speedballing for me. Well, so. I will have to find one that's under 13 pages and I'll have you <laughs> on, this is not a LibriVox. We can read it together. I, I'm absolutely down at, at any point to always do something, uh, collaborate with you, have you back on at any point whenever you're willing. Oh Yeah. But uh, we will definitely sign. We're going to be signing off. Um, just want to plug that I now have a Patreon. If anyone is interested in uh, contributing to the show, that'd be fucking awesome. Look me up at. Uh, I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, check me out on Twitter as well. It's just search Cooper Cherry on Twitter. You'll find the podcast feed. 
And then if you're slightly more daring and you want to see some terrible shit posting, check <laughs> me out at Anarcho Moadab. It's good shit posting, uh, folks. It's good. I'm up to, I'm almost at a thousand followers now. I just hit 900, so I've just got that 100 left. Hell yeah, you and me both, and then I, buddy. I feel like I can, uh, you know, I can get a sticker or something from Jack. <laughs> yeah, become a Twitter affiliate. <laughs> right. I think but, he sends uh, you a free homemade bottle of kombucha. <laughs> it's not that great. Yeah, nice. <laughs> awesome. But uh, once again, John, thanks so much for joining me on the pod. And uh, this is Podcast with Cooper Cherry signing off. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you.